now, yes, this this uh, country has evolved to a way that I don't want to participate anymore. I don't want to keep forfeiting over, you know, mm-hmm. um, my income every quarter to finance projects that I don't agree with and spend money in ways that I'm not consulted on. This is money that I'm earning and and that I've, you know, risked a ton to earn, you know, and and all this stuff. And so, you know, I wonder if like if if it's productive therefore to decouple yourself from the identity of your country and just say yeah technology does give you the runaway but it has nothing to do with america it has nothing to do with sure. canada right it's all about what we choose to do with it and you could do anything from anywhere hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Jay Martin, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Robert, it's good to be here. Great to have you on, man. Uh, It's been a while since we talked last. I think you said, what, June last year? Yeah, last we spoke, you were in Costa Rica with your family. It would have been last spring. I had you on the pod. And um, part of summer, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, been too long. So I'm excited to, to dive into some of these topics today. Um, just by way of quick intro, you are the host of the Jay Martin Show. Uh, and you also host uh, BRIC, which is one of the world's largest commodity and investment conferences. Uh, when is the next one coming up? It's every January. This was actually my full-time gig prior to 2020, I hosted investment conferences across North America. And when we put that business on pause, as everybody in live event production did, you know, we, we built a media company and it ended up being, frankly, a much better business. Mm-hmm. And it became my core focus. So when we got the green light to resurrect the events, the investment conference company, it honestly wasn't like a quick yes to me, Robert. It was like, wait a minute, I hated that business. Uh, so what we decided to do is just resurrect our favorite. So I throw all my weight behind one conference year, just one flagship. It's every January in Vancouver. And now it's a business that I love again. You know, like it was, uh, it was a treadmill before eight to 11 rents per year. And, yeah. and it was just chaos. And, and, uh, now it's fun. Yeah. We just, yeah. Fight maybe 80 to hundred keynote speakers and, and jam for two days on macro and commodities and all kinds of stuff. That's super cool. Um, I know events are struggle. I couldn't imagine doing eight to 11 a year. That's a lot. Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> so today, yeah, I we think... Still, right? like sorry, go ahead. I always got 
I always get a pitch to go to a new city still every year without fail at the end of the show. It's like, come to Miami, let's do New York, you know? And it's tempting and I got to revisit my my journal entries and remember why I don't do that anymore and why this business is better and all that stuff, right? Yeah. It's a slippery yeah. slope. It's seductive. Scale is seductive, isn't it? For sure. I've, I've found myself traveling a bit too much for the show this year and I can somewhat relate, although not organizing the conferences, just going to them. But now that I go, I don't get to participate as much because I'm typically interviewing people the whole time. So interviewing okay. speakers. So it's really changed for me. I used to enjoy the events, specifically the Bitcoin events to interact with people, but now it's it's much more work than it is play. Right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 Um, so today we're gonna talk a few about a few things here. So we're gonna talk about what's happening in the world, right? <clears throat> Clearly we're going through some massive shift. I think unless you're living under a rock. It's pretty obvious things are changing uh, and changing fast. And so we'll talk about kind of like a global, the global shift in power that's occurring, but in the context of past global shifts in power, like past empires and the rise and fall of, of past empires. So what's going on right now in your view? Like clearly things are shaken up. Trust is being lost in social institutions um, there's also a new digital paradigm, right? Media is no longer centralized top down as we're proving right now by doing this podcast. It's much more decentralized and bottom up. Uh, where do you see things in the world and, uh, as it pertains to this shift in global power? Yeah, there's, there's a couple angles to attack that one. And I think like staring us in the face is the fact that we're ending the era that I, I grew up in, which is the era of globalization, right? The era of increased access to a wider variety of cheaper and cheaper goods. And essentially, if you have the cash, you know, or the credit, you could buy whatever you needed from the global marketplace. And I'm talking about, you know, multinational companies and countries, right? The raw materials that you needed to build your economies, et cetera, et cetera. There was trust that existed globally, fragile as it might have been, but trust enough that you could take part in that global marketplace. And I, I firmly believe that era is over. Mm. I think the door has been closing for a while. Um, you know, we saw an increase of activity in economic sanctions and trade wars and currency wars. Now, proliferation of hot wars that I don't believe are going to slow down. Every year, this decade has hit us with a haymaker and it's not done with us. That's my thoughts. It's not a pleasant thought, but, you know, um, the majority of history is peacetime, but in between periods of peacetime, there's periods of terrifying volatility, war, disasters, all of this. Um, we might be in one of those periods right now. So, you know, on the heels of that, I, I try to step back from, you know, the immediate noise that's hitting my screen every day, right? The headlines that are all made out to matter um, because most of them don't, right? If you like, I like to lean on the Lindy principle when I'm reading the news, you know, mm -hmm. the predicted relevant lifespan of something is best predicted by its historic relevant lifespan. And you know, although I, I read Bloomberg every day, you know, Bloomberg's got a job. It's to produce front page news every morning and every afternoon. And frankly, there isn't front page news every morning and every afternoon. And so, mm -hmm. you know, one way that I insulate myself from that near term news is like, let's step back and, and look at the really big picture, right? Because predicting short term trends and short term volatility is remarkably hard. Mm -hmm. But making some assumptions about how the world might change in the course of a decade is actually a lot easier to do because you're just focusing on the, the major the mega trends, the super tankers that don't turn so frequently, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of time just studying previous empires to give me some sense of where we might be in this current day's empire. Um, and I would imagine that in every previous empire, the citizens of that empire probably never saw the sunset years coming, right? They were born into this era, this world of how things are and how things therefore have always been, and this will continue for the foreseeable future. And why would it change? Um, but you don't have to look very far back. You know, if you look at just the last 600 years of history, you'll see the rise and fall of the Portuguese empire and their respective world currency. Hmm. Um, you know, the Spanish empire, the Dutch empire, uh, the British empire, and today the American empire. And that's five inside of 600 years. It gives you a bit of a hint at the expeditious nature with which power rotates around the globe. Like it happens quite fast, you know? 
Um, and so just given that as a template, it's like what inning might we be in in this current age of the American empire is probably later, right? Mm -hmm. and, and timing that's, I think, impossible. You know, and I definitely don't have the skill to do so. And, uh, but, you know, you, you can look at the details, you know, what caused the rise, you know, what caused the fall and all of this. And you'll see a very similar blueprint that occurred and is occurring, you know, right now, I think. And, you know, at a super high level, it's like you have a relatively impoverished developing country that becomes highly productive. They're incentivized to become so for, you know, a variety of reasons. And that productivity builds wealth and wealth fuels decadence, and decadence fuels debts and, and debt fuels decline. And you'll see that cycle occur again and again and again. And you can go back to the Roman Empire, you'll see the same thing, but definitely through the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, British, and American. And if that template gets repeated over and over again, you overlay that with where we're at today. Well, we're absolutely, are we not in the debt fuels decline age of this empire? I, you know, and, you know, in addition, when you see that debt fueling decline and the state becoming insolvent because they, they can no longer afford their bills, right? And so you always see the same activity, expansion of the money supply to try to paper over the losses and, you know, how, how we doing on that front, right? And, you know, in addition to that, just typically internal conflict that starts to become scaled to a degree that borders on civil war. It's usually in response to increasing wealth gaps where, uh, there's a percentage of the population that didn't get to participate in the wealth creation activities along the way. They feel continually disenfranchised. And um, most people don't understand finance, so they don't know why they're not living as well as their neighbors or people they can see. Um, and we're, you know, I think that's definitely very present today. And and for the same reasons, you know, it's uh, a, a lot of people in, in the West were sold a dream, right? It was it was go to school, get a good education, borrow the student loan money, go to post-secondary, get a degree. Don't worry about the money. Do what you love. So get the liberal arts degree, right? And they do this, right? And they grow up and at 30 years old, they're 150 grand in student loan debt. They have a worthless degree and they're looking at their neighbors who are millionaires thinking, what the? I did everything right. Like I followed all the advice. Right. This can't be, you know, they obviously cheated, you know, whoever's ahead of me on the monopoly board. And it's like, well, no. They might not have cheated, but you're both playing the same game, and only one of you knew the rules. That's for sure, mm. you know. And and um, and this proliferates. People want to find the enemy, then, so they'll find one, and they'll incriminate that enemy, right? And you see these civil divisions just burst. Um, and so, in combination with the insolvency of the state, you see the civil unrest just, just blossom into bordering on a civil war. And then you got to have the external competitor, right? You got to have somebody rising up to challenge that superpower and put them on notice, and Historically, it's it's not one country that kind of rises up and challenges the superpower. It's a syndicate, smaller countries that may be able to pause their ideological differences in order to unify against unseating that global superpower. Mm. And with those three core determinants, the insolvency of the state, the civil unrest and internal conflict and the external competitor, again, like, so if we're in the debt fuels decline part of that cycle and generally in that cycle, you see those three things begin to rise um, and, and increase. It's, it's like, well, where are we today? Right. And, and, um, and having said all of that, like, I think the future is very hard to predict and I don't know what happens next. I mean, as I said, you know, if this is the end of one era, whatever happens next, it's not going to be simple, quick or predictable. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, how do I deal with that? I just, I try to build as much optionality into my life as possible. And when you don't know what's around the corner, you want to be ready for anything, right? And there's a few ways that, you know, we could talk about that, but, you know, at a high level, that's, and I don't see the leadership in the West that's ready to step up and take charge in the way that someone needs to right now. You know, I, I don't see that at all, unfortunately, um, because uh, that would be nice, but I'm up in Canada, you know, and our leaders got no backbone and, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I see the same in, in the US and, and across Europe and and uh, we don't have the strong follow me leadership that we need right now. So there's a population that's lost with nobody to follow. So they're angry at each other and seemingly to no end right now. Yeah, man. A lot of good points there. I really like your point on this. People have like this assumption of inertia about existing political slash national structures, right? Like I'm born into America. America is a country. America is the global superpower. That's just the way things are. But 
Yeah. It's kind of a static view of reality, right? It fails to account for this turning over, as you've described, of empires across history. I think actually the average age of an empire is around 250 years, if I recall correctly. In the US, mm. obviously we passed that that birthday, uh, or we're approaching that birthday, I guess, 2026. Mm. I don't know if I'm doing my math right. We're close to it or past it. Um, and on the debt point, the US is what, 150% debt to GDP, something like that. So clearly we're entering that unsustainable territory where we really need to expand the printing of money rapidly to cover mm -hmm. deficits, right? To, to paper over losses, as you described. So it, if this is happening, if this is the world we're living in, the end of globalization, let's call it, is that a direct consequence or at least maybe not a direct consequence is the major contributor to that the decline of the US empire as kind of network security for the global trade network right if if the US is not securing global trade lanes then global trade will obviously seize up and shrink and then that sort of creates this battle right for to fill the power vacuum essentially is that how you see it that the US U.S. empire decline is, is driving this decline in globalization? I think so, because if you look at like what's supporting the American empire or the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, and you know, a lot of people will make claims that since 1971, nothing, you know, there's the gold standard argument that that's, uh, I think it carries water, but you know, I, I think in modern times, the currency is supported by the net asset value of a country. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's more than just one thing. It's the competitive nature of its education system, its innovation sectors, uh, it's the strength of its military, its medical system, and all of this stuff contributes. Right. Um, but when the money runs out, all that stuff gets pretty hard. Right. And so if you can't throw your weight around globally from a military standpoint, you land yourself in trouble. And what you'll see, you know, through all those empires we just discussed, like, you know, the Portuguese Empire, they had a, a reserve currency. It was kind of limited to the merit to the, the Mediterranean, but not exclusively, but it was fully supported by the strength of their maritime competency, you know? Mm -hmm. And they did the same thing uh, that the Spanish did and the Dutch did is that, you know, they were building these ships that were able to explore the world in ways that had never occurred before. So they could gather wealth from all over the place and bring it home. Um, they also determined that it would be cheaper to have somebody else build those ships. And so they'd outsource the labor, you know, and in the case of the Dutch, they outsourced that labor to the, to Britain, right? To the Brits. It was cheap British labor. They could build ships far cheaper than we could. And so, you know, you out end up outsourcing essentially your middle economy, right? To build the technology of the future. Um, and, and that is how, you know, the Dutch took over the world in a sense, they stole the middle-class jobs from the Spanish and they started building ships. Uh, cheaper than Spanish labor could, mm. um, which contributes to that wealth gap scenario. And um, and you're outsourcing expertise as well, because suddenly Britain woke up and they're like, you know, we build the best ships in the world and we're making a lot of money doing it. So now you've got that, you know, productive population mm. building wealth. They've got the innovation knowledge base uh, to be competitive from, you know, from a you know, at that point, like a exploration standpoint, but that was a military standpoint. They built the world's biggest navy, of course, right? And um, and you know, I look at the challenges being made to the American Empire right now through a similar lens, right? It's like there's all these quasi proxy wars erupting, and I think the South China Sea is maybe the next, uh, you know, I don't know the timing on that, but I would expect it's a place that that is very vulnerable, um, and. The uh, support for for Israel, for example, like I, I think that timing there was extraordinarily convenient for the East uh, because the U.S. is going bankrupt supporting Ukraine already, and whatever percentage of Americans supported supporting Ukrainians will war. I mean, ten times as many will will come out in favor of supporting Israel, right? And they've already been stretched, and and so you know, great way to pick off an empire is to pick little proxy fights, and you know pick off all of his friends and essentially force that empire into battles that they just continually have to finance and fund and stretch thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, and uh, you kind of got two choices when you're that top dog, right? You can enter the battle at risk of losing it, which is a very high stakes gamble, but that's the one that often the power makes because the alternative is to walk away, 
is to abandon the fight and say, look, it's not worth it, right? We maybe internally you're like, I don't think we can win this or the cost doesn't uh, outweigh the benefits. We're just not going to take part. But from a global perspective, you know, that's the big bully backing down and walking away from the fight, right? Mm-hmm. Which sends a, a pretty loud message uh, to any competitors anywhere, right? That now's the time to make your move. Mm-hmm. Um, got the superpower on their heels. And so, you know, that's the decision I'm like waiting to see here, right? At what point will the US say, actually, we're not going to step in on Taiwan? You know, that's a very loud message that they don't have the bandwidth, the, um, the uh, military weight or the money to do so. So absolutely, man. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I like the, you know, if you have the global reserve currency, it almost, I mean, that means you're the global superpower to some extent, even if it's, lo- if we're not saying global localized, as you said, um, the Portuguese were in the Mediterranean, but that leads, so for some reason, I, I, this is a fiat problem, I'm pretty sure, you eviscerate your domestic industrial base once you start outsourcing these things, right? So labor at home is more expensive, cheaper to cheaper to have the British make the ships for the Portuguese, right? Or I'm sorry, the Dutch. I think you said the Dutch. Yeah. And th- that outsourcing uh, infuses industrial competence and wealth, right, into the, the group that's getting the outsourcing. And then you have a shift in power, right? All of a sudden, Britain now has the dominant Navy, and then they, you know, what's the old saying? He who controls the waves controls the world. All right. of a sudden, there's conditions right. are set for a flip, a flippening from one yeah, yeah. global superpower to another. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And yeah, so so things are very uncertain, and I agree with you. I fully agree with you. In in times of uncertainty, optionality is the optimal strategy, right? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. You need to have as many options for yourself as possible, both at an individual level and at a, a national level. Where what phase do you think we are in in the decline of the U.S. empire? Like you mentioned offline we've been kicking this can down the road for quite some time how much further can we kick it or i i know short-term predictions are difficult but like approximately directionally where do you think we are in that decline yeah 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 so i uh i tend to believe robert that we can kick the can a lot further than people think Mm. and i will get pushback on that all day long and i i totally get why right because there's endless reasons why it's different this time. And now we've gone a bit too far, 
right? $32 trillion in debt is unsustainable, right? A $2 trillion deficit is unsustainable. There's no way we can keep this going. But, you know, as if a $20 trillion debt wasn't crazy, it was crazy too. $10 trillion was insane. You know, a half a trillion dollar deficit is unsustainable. It's always been quote unquote unsustainable. And there's always reasons why this time, this time is different. Like, oh yeah, but now we have this, you know, treasury supply and demand imbalance and we're going to be unable to finance. And there's always, there's been reasons that 20 trillion and 10 trillion, there's always been reasons why this time it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, <laughs> you know, superpowers can be far more creative than we give them credit for. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily understand the concept of the idea. Well, to know your thoughts on this, you know, when all else fails, take the country to war, right? You know, war is a short-term stimulus, right? It is. It's it's not really productive because you're destroying things, mm-hmm. but you know, it is a short-term stimulus and can can stimulate an economy for a period of time. Um, at the end of it, you have to clean up the mess, so it's not a long-term boost to anybody's economy, um, unless you're completely detached from the fight, just in production mode. But but anyways. Um, when it comes to predicting the, you know, the demise, like what cycle are we at? Like, you know, I have a, I have a buddy that he, he passed away last year and I knew him for about 15 years and he was one of these like, uh, you know, hardcore gold bucks. Right. And he had bet his entire career in business and life on the crash of the American empire, the fall of the U S dollar and the decoupling of the manipulation of the price of gold, right? And, you know, pick your number, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. assets become worth when the currencies fail. Um, now, obviously sad to lose him, that goes without saying, but he died waiting for an event to occur that never occurred. He mm-hmm. built his entire business and life anticipating an event and he died before it happened. He spent his whole life, you know, and it, it like it's very important for me to think about that because we can spend a long time waiting for something to happen. You know, eventually it's, and it's like, or you can play the game that's in front of you right now, you know? And and uh, I kind of, I look back at this guy's life with a bit of like, oh, tremendous sadness, man. I was like, you know, you spent you spent the last two decades of your life anticipating something and preparing for it and, and living your life accordingly. And that thing never materialized and, mm-hmm. and you died waiting, you know? And, and it's dangerous to play that game. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to like throw stones at, you know, Chairman Powell and, and President Biden and say, you know, these clowns don't know what they're doing, but I think somebody does, right? I think there's a lot of strings being pulled that are very orchestrated. And, um, you know, uh, I think the the lengths that people will go to to hold on to power, we should never underestimate because it's easy to look at established order and, and governments and, and uh, you know, organizations and, and say, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find collective solutions to these problems, right? Yes, we're in a lot of financial trouble here, but they're doing their best to figure it out and, uh, and, and find a clear path forward. And, and I would just say, maybe, oh, that'd be great if that was the case. But, you know, it, it's not a government body. It's, it's one or two individuals that are just making decisions. And they're probably motivated by the same things that you or I are motivated by, which is their personal well-being, the well-being of their immediate family, right? Their, their, their career, right? They're, they're, looking to better their situation, right? They're looking for a good deal. Mm-hmm. They're looking for safety and security for themselves, you know? And and um, I'm just not so convinced that that there's any kind of uh, collective effort to right the ship. Yeah. So people will cling to power as long as they can. And, and, you know, another one of those like cycles that we see, right, is we often see nations and America didn't start this way. It's really a special case because it's an invented country that's very young. Uh, but typically the way you see order mature is you start with the monarchy, you start with the dictatorship. And, and often that's required to get a developing country together and unified towards one productive means. You know, you need that kind of like hardline ruler. Um, but eventually, you know, the, the wealthy merchants began, begin to step up and challenge that monarch or that authoritarian leader. And so you end up with the arist- aristocracy, right? We've got a few sort of wealthy landowners, merchants, whoever, who are now governing so you you were like ruled by one. Now you're ruled by a few. Same thing happens though. Eventually the population rises up against the aristocrats and says, we want a piece of this pie and you know, a say in how things are going to be orchestrated. So then the aristocracy becomes a democracy, which eventually becomes anarchy, which you know, kind of get close to that. But you know, it's it's that's the cycle. And then you're in anarchy and you need the authority authoritarian leader to come back and restore order again. And often, frankly, like throughout history, people vote for that dictator in those scenarios because they just want order. 
right? When democracy eventually crumbles and you end up with anarchy, people become quite scared and they they gravitate towards a strong leader. We need someone to lead us and show us the way forward, right? Because you know, a lot of people just want life to be that simple, right? They want to be shown the way, led, right? And and you end up back at the beginning of the cycle. Yeah. Um, so, you know, America is a unique case, right? Because it didn't start like that. It was an invented nation with no history, which is super cool. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that I would maybe, I'm a bit more bullish on the American empire is just because of the origin story, mm. right? You're not, not anchored by thousands of years of history and pros and cons to that, right? You were just saying like, what's the life cycle of, a, of an empire and where are we at in the American empire and all this? Um, you know, I think that can cripple a lot of a lot of Westerners, specifically like Americans and Canadians. You know, my I'm dual citizen. We're up in Canada, but spend a lot of time in the U.S. But because we have this view of history that is attached to the length of time our countries have existed. I mean, Canada, U.S. It's a couple hundred years, and so we tend to look at the world through the lens of a couple hundred years of history, which makes us an outlier from a lot of Europeans and, and Asians who have you know a couple thousand years of history to lean on to define who they are and therefore whose land belongs to who and all of this stuff. It's like, you know, but, uh, I can't predict the end, man, but, uh, but, um, you can take steps to prepare when you don't know what's around the corner. And I think still participate in the upside of today, you know, and I think that's really important for people to, to recognize because the doom and gloom narratives, like they're so seductive, aren't they? I mean, they suck you in. It's like the end of days headlines, they, they get you, you know, and, and, uh, people that forecast that never actually have to be right. They just have to be early. And so it's a good business to be in, you know? So be wary of those individuals, right? You know, I know we knew a bunch of them. So I'm always a bit cautious around those predictions. Yeah, I think it's a really good point on this cycle of everyone kind of competing for access to the spigot of stolen goods, right? The, the spigot of theft. So the state, right? It's, it's stealing from people through taxation, through inflation, Maybe initially that's the monarch or the authoritarian, and then eventually the aristocrats say, hey, I want a piece of the action. So they, uh, political reform, sort of, you go from rule by one to rule by a few, and then eventually the population, hey, I want some a piece of the action too. Uh, there's some quote, I don't know who said it, but it said, uh, the death of democracy is when people realize they can vote themselves free money, right? That you can cast this vote to get access to whatever the government is stealing and that really and this is the root i really believe that's why we talk about this on the show a lot i think this is the root like the root problem is that we are stealing from one another in an institutionalized systematic way and so there's a huge incentive to try to get as close to that spigot as possible there's another great quote i like on this too that every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods Right, like <laughs> the guy's just trying to get in office so he can cut deals for himself to benefit himself and his friends and his family. They're not. They're not going into statism to be on a moral crusade to save the country. Like I think there's a lot of platitudes, a lot of patriotic bullshit, but at the end of the day, they're just trying to get ahead, like everyone else. And yes. um, and I, your friend, man, that that is a sad story because he's probably right. You know, I mean, almost certainly right that there is going to be a decline of empire as there always is that will end with a lot of money printing and things like gold and Bitcoin, you know, other commodities should do really well in that environment. But again, it's the timing. It's the timing that's just so damn impossible to, to tell. And um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, you, you alluded to something earlier too, like the kicking the can issue, right? How far can we kick the can down the road? I think it's a very complex thing because we have, on one hand, escalating taxation, inflation, regulation by fiat. So people are having their, their private property violated more and more and more and more. So it's like, where's the breaking point there? We don't really know. But the counterforce to that is we keep having new technological innovations that are creating more productivity. So there's this like uh, these two competing forces where one group is stealing the fruits of the productivity, it, you know, allowing them, which is sort of accelerating the demise of the nation. But this counterforce is more and more productivity coming available to be harnessed or harvested in that way. 
And so you don't, it's like a race between the two. Like, is the theft going to outpace the innovation or vice versa? And to try to find that tipping point is so incredibly difficult. Um, but, it, but it does, you know, I don't know, because the digital age, clearly we're radically more productive just as a result of these tools. How much more runway does that give the U.S. empire, the state? I, I really find a hard time understanding that question. And it's like, it's a real rock and a hard place too, because like you want innovation, you want productivity to go up, but you don't want to extend the runway of the empire because that just lets the empire kind of, you know, keep engaging in imperialism, which is not really good for anyone as we've touched on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Let me ask you a question about that. Yeah, like, so, so as we have this conversation, you know, there's usually people have a bias or, you know, like I'm, I'm from the West. I'm, you know, Canadian American. So I would love to see America succeed here, find a path forward that gives this empire some new legs. And, you know, I grew up in the nineties in, in Canada, surrounded by opportunity, clean streets, safe, predictable governance. You know, my life is what it is because of where I was born and went, you know, surrounded by opportunity and choice and freedom. And I would love for my kids to have that as well, wherever we have to go, you know? And so, uh, I, I would love to see that movie continue to play out in, in America so we can participate. Um, but you know, maybe we can do that anyways, you know? And, and so as you're saying, like, does technology give us a runway? Well, I think it gives me a runway, you know, it gives you a runway and it gives everybody a runway should yeah. they choose to hop on it. But you don't have to attach that runway to the place that you're from and the place that you're born. That's right. And I actually get a lot of hate for this. I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm not a patriotic person, Robert. Like I've never really felt proud of being Canadian, for example. Um, I'm feel lucky. I feel really fortunate. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. I feel very blessed. But I'm proud of things that I've accomplished, right? I'm proud of the businesses I've built. I'm proud of my kids. You know, I'm yeah. proud of you know, competition in sport, these things, right? But I had nothing to do with drawing the lines around this continent. So why would I feel proud of that? And so if, you know, We've existed in this system, though, that's rewarded indiv individualistic ambition. Then, aren't the ambitious individuals going to pick up and leave when the situation doesn't suit them any longer? Like, do I feel, you know? So, for example, I'll give you an example. And we're we're exploring moving down to the states with my kids. We're also exploring Southeast Asia. We're putting down roots in Indonesia, spending a lot of time there with with my family and. And it's because I want that optionality and I don't know what the next, you know, if, the, if in 30 to 40 years, you know, I want to make sure I do everything I can to put my kids in a situation that I was in, surrounded by opportunity, mm -hmm. if I can. And subscribers will fire back at me and say, you're, you're running away from the place that gave you everything, you know? Mm -hmm. You just, you stuck around, made a bunch of money as long as it suited you and then you left. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I kind of push back on that and I say, well, no, like... I've built three businesses here. I've employed over a hundred people, paid an obscene amount of taxes, mm -hmm. right? I feel like I've given a lot, right? And uh, and now, yes, this this uh, country has evolved to a way that I don't want to participate anymore. I don't want to keep forfeiting over, you know, mm -hmm. um, my income every quarter to finance projects that I don't agree with and spend money in ways that I'm not consulted on. This is money that I'm earning and and that I've, you know, risked a ton to earn, you know, and. And all this stuff. And so, you know, I wonder if like, if if it's productive, therefore, to decouple yourself from the identity of your country and just say, yeah, technology does give you the runaway, but it has nothing to do with America. It has nothing to do with sure. Canada, right? It's all about what we choose to do with it. And you could do anything from anywhere. I mean, maybe that is the new age, right? Like the new age is always hard to predict. Yes. Right. You think like the next empire is going to be the next, because of America, you know, she see this shining sea, it's going to be another big country, but you know, Portugal's not a big country, right? Neither is Holland, neither is Britain, right? These aren't countries that if you looked at the map, you're like, oh yeah, they're definitely empire material, right? Like, no, they're sort of insignificant on the map, right? And so, you know, the next stage is always hard to predict. And, and it's very likely that like the next stage is something completely different than we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and isn't that exciting, right? So what do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I agree with you. First of all, like, I'm born in America. I feel very fortunate, but I'm not patriotic about being an American. You know, I don't think that 
again, that sort of collectivist thinking doesn't make sense to me, right? This The world is comprised of individuals, not economic aggregates, you know? So like, it, it's, it's an easy mental shortcut to think like, oh, what is America going to do? What is China going to do? What is Russia going to do? But that betrays, it's a lower resolution depiction of reality. The high resolution depiction is it's a bunch of individuals interacting. So if you're not going to embrace, again, in times of great uncertainty, if you're not going to embrace the options that are available to you, right, which largely for us are digital tools, technologies, these options that we can have, right? We can now, with Bitcoin, you can hold your savings outside of the system, right? And something that can be inflated, corrupted, stopped, et cetera. You can get multiple passports, right? There's all this jurisdictional arbitrage. Uh, multi-flag theory is the term being thrown around now. You know, you can have residence and or citizenship in multiple places so that if one country um, starts to spiral downward more quickly, well, then you have plan B, C, D, et cetera. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I don't, I would not appreciate someone moralizing me about that. And I think there's, you need to delaminate the nation from the nation state. Like it's one thing to be, I guess, I may be proud to be American in the sense that we were founded as a constitutional republic, a very decentralized governance model that created a lot of success. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I do think we messed up by swapping out property for the pursuit of happiness. You know, from the Magna Carta, it was life, liberty, and inviolable property. Those things are the most important thing, really the only thing that a government should do is to preserve those three things. Um, happiness is just way more ephemeral. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, how does it go yeah. that render happiness? Uh, I just have an issue with that. Mm. So in, in one sense, it's like, I'm proud of the nation, the people, what we've done, what we've accomplished, but the state that's developed, right? This centralized, federalized state, I don't agree with at all, right? You know, it's, it's the opposite ethos, actually, of how the U.S. was founded. It was founded to be a constitutional republic. Now we proclaim ourselves as a democracy, and we drop bombs on people in the name of democracy. Like It's, it's, it's utterly insane, frankly. Yeah. And so I think that's a really useful way to look at it, is you, know, you can be, the nation is the people, right? What they've done, their history, their culture, their accomplishments. The state, though, is this this administrative coercive layer that I don't think they have to be commingled. I think you can look at one separate from the other. So when you're saying, hey, I want to leave Canada and diversify my options, you know, passports, residencies, businesses abroad, you, who, no, you're not doing anything wrong. Like, what does that mean? You're, you're not <laughs> submitting to the authority of the state that you're from? fuck that, right? You're free. Mm. You're embracing mm -hmm. the tools and technologies that give you that freedom. So I don't, I, I just, I, I reject that. I reject the entire premise of that argument, essentially. Mm. So I think, yeah, this is, and this is what people need to do. I think, I guess if the bigger trend in my mind is we're moving out of the industrial age into the digital age, the example I like to use is if you were talking to someone in the agricultural age, about the features of the industrial age. You know, we have steel, we have skyscrapers, we have airplanes, we have nuclear power, you know. The person in the agricultural age would not even understand, they wouldn't even have the language to comprehend what you were saying to them. Right. They'd say these things and they would just be like glassy-eyed, like, what are you talking about? If we are moving, if this is actually the shift of an age from the industrial age into the digital age, then the digital age is going to look wholly different than what we're accustomed to, right? We don't even have the language to describe the features of the world we're moving into. Mm. So I think you just have to embrace that as reality, right? As you said, with this, these ages have changed over time. The empires have turned over over time. And if you turn a blind eye to that, I just think you're doing yourself and your family and your loved ones a disservice. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, it gets back to that concept of, of like personal sovereignty, call it, you know, but it's yeah. like, it's accepting that nobody has your back. That's and right. It turns out that's great news yeah. because it puts you in the driver's seat, right? And allows you to be accountable for everything. Yes. Um, 
you know, if you can travel the world with a with a little one, if I can go put down roots in Indonesia with three little boys, like nothing stopping anybody, man. Like it's right there for you, right? Yes. Go, go build out that optionality and take part, right? Absolutely, yeah. man. And there's some there's humility encoded in that, right? That you know, unlike I don't want to like God rest your friend's soul, not to pick on him, but like uh, don't I'll get put all your eggs in one basket, right? It's have the humility to I have a thesis. But I don't know. Even if I'm right, I might not be right on timing. Probably not right on timing, actually. Mm-hmm. And so, what what do you think we can learn from all of this? Like, what what can we learn about this historical turnover of empire? This historical turnover of technological ages. What can we take from the lessons of history and apply to our lives today, going forward? Love that, man. Um, you know, so two things I, I take from it, Robert, one would be, uh, you know, at that sort of bigger picture macro geopolitical level, so much of this is, is the movie is just going to be played and I've got no control over how that movie is played. Um, and I can feel a certain way. I can feel really strongly about how I want things to go. Um, but history is going to continue to charge forward and repeat itself and we're going to continue to make the same mistakes because we need to learn lessons the hard way we can study history i can read business books i still have to hire the wrong people to figure it out man like there's no shortcuts to life you know and and, um and uh you know it was like what was it in 146 bc scipio emilianus was standing over his roman proconsul was standing over the city of carthage Mm. right after rome had conquered north africa spain and greece and this is kind of the event that like solidified them as the real hegemony in the, in the Mediterranean. And as he was watching Carthage burn, and Carthage at that point in time was one of the most powerful and affluent cities that the world had ever seen. It was a city that should never fall, you know. And and through siege and force, the Romans, you know, uh, demolished it and then burnt it to the ground. And the story goes that as Emilianus is watching Carthage burn, he started to cry. And his buddy asked him. Um, you know, why are you crying? This is the greatest thing that any Roman could ask for. And he said, well, you know, I can't help but feel that one day the same fate will fall my people. Mm. And then as the legend goes, he quoted Homer from 700 years earlier, who said, um, uh, one day Troy shall perish and Priam and his people shall be slain. And it's the same thing, right? It's like, we just got to, it's going to keep happening, man. Like it's out of our control. The roller coaster is moving. And that's kind of liberating because it takes meaning out of a lot of this for me and not to sound like nihilistic or or whatever but you know we we are our actions are often controlled by what does this say about me you know what does this mean and and kind of navigate the world that way you know at a human nature level we want to look good we don't want to look bad right but if you can depart yourself from like a lot of that meaning and just say this we are so insignificant in the grand scheme of things and, and my story will be forgotten no matter what i do and probably a lot sooner than i'm willing to admit you know like you know, and uh, within six months, like how many times after I die, within six months, how many times will my name ever be mentioned again? Right? Like, let's be real here, right. you know? Like, yes. not very many times. Right. And, you know, three or four generations later, we're so diluted, we almost never existed in the first place. So, you know, that's what I like about the big picture trends because it puts everything in perspective and it's like, none of this really matters, man. Just do your own thing, proceed accordingly, build what you want to build, like, do what you want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, separately, like, what can we learn from this? I mean, I, I guess, like, I, I take a lot of power in the idea of sovereignty. I think it's very, very important and very understated. Mm. Uh, I think it's very empowering and maybe liberating for the same reasons. Um, and And acknowledging that, like, everybody in power over you is directed by the same human nature as you are you know, and yes. they're governed by fear and greed just the same. Again, that should give you a lot of permissions in life, right? So just maybe decide your actions for yourself, um, his mind, his religion kind of thing, right? Like all the laws that govern us and they're just fabrications from somebody else's imagination, right? Just the same as like, I didn't draw the borders of Canada. I had nothing to do with that, right? That's the entire structure with which I live my life. It was just ideas somebody else came up with, did not consult me on. And that should also be very liberating, right? And and, you know, that's what I take away from this is like, oh, it's, it's, it's just a blank canvas, man. Like we overthink the shit out of this. You know, you can do whatever you want. Right? 
and go wherever you want and operate the way you want to and and sure watch you back and, and be polite and be nice to people but uh you know we make way too many assumptions about how we should be and how things should be and all that's a waste of time well i agree man I, the point on humbling yourself as kind of an individual and history you know um so important and very liberating as you said you know there might be this tendency to want to think you're special or you're different or we all we all are different and special in our own ways but ultimately what there's been like a hundred billion humans that have ever lived or some crazy number like that like if you right one divided by a hundred billion like it's a tiny tiny infinitesimal fraction and so to just accept that you know it's again very liberating i don't think it has to be nihilistic or um negative even you know it's just liberating that you are free to sort of imprint your values on this world as you see fit mm. and uh i think the quote that came to mind as you were saying that that every man dies twice right he dies once in his physical body and he dies the second time the last name last time his name is spoken and right that's like just that. how it is that's just how it goes and um i get a lot of meaning actually I guess somewhat paradoxically, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible talks about, you know, this is meaningless, that is meaningless. He's going through this whole gamut of things he's done and things he's seen. He says, this too is meaningless. And that sounds maybe negative, but I find liberation in it. You know, it's like the, this is all kind of this giant ball of energy we live in. It's meaningless, but it frees us then to go out and create our own meaning, right? We can create impacts in the lives of others, we can create new tools and technologies that serve uh, the future of our species. You know, we can make new discoveries, et cetera. And I really hope that we're moving into this age of, you know, right now sovereignty is almost exclusively ascribed to the state, right? We call them sovereigns, sovereign debt. You know, we use these terms. That's bullshit. That's bullshit, right? States are not sovereign. They're not they're not free to act as they see fit. I don't agree with that. I think individuals are sovereign, right? And and that idea really is the cornerstone of Western civilization, that the, the sovereignty of the individual supersedes the sovereignty of the state. Now, we've gotten far away from that, but that was the idea that got us here. And that, my, my great hope for, you know, decentralization, the digital age, and Bitcoin is that we can now have the tools to actually empower that ideal in a much more real way, right? Mm. And create a world composed of sovereign individuals. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. 
And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. And somewhat of a tangent, but I wanted to ask you this because I know, I know you're into to commodities. How do you look at commodities in this world? Like commodities obviously matter. It's how we build everything, right? These are the raw materials for every industrial process. And how do you view them uh, in the lens of the phase we are in in the end of globalization or the end of the U.S. empire? Like, how, What is your, your mental model for, for looking at commodities in that context? Well, it's, uh, I use the commodity sector as a lens to help me understand the world because the distribution of power globally is largely a consequence of the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And the, the raw materials that matter change over time. And the, you know, the, the value of almost every commodity over a long enough time period falls to zero because we engineer it out of necessity. You know, uh, that's sort of the the story, the long story with commodities. So it's like, what matters today? You know, and and um, how might that dictate the future to a degree? Um, you know, we were chatting before I hit record here about how if we're in the era of deglobalization or friendshoring or whatever you want to call it, the era of trust is over the way it was, and as a consequence. I think countries are going to be a lot more guarded with the raw materials they have access to mm. and who they're willing to share those with and under what terms, you know, and we're seeing yeah, deals like Russia selling natural gas to China at half the cost they're willing to sell to Europe because that's their, that's their ace, man. They're going to weaponize that. Of course they are, right? The same as the United States weaponizes their currency. That's, that's kind of it, right? And then smaller nations like Indonesia, it's the world's small nation, but it's the world's largest exporter of nickel, right? Very important alloy, uh, integral to any kind of energy infrastructure. Um, and they've put uh, export bans in place as of like six months ago. And so they're not banning the export of nickel, but they are... So historically, uh, Indonesia exported raw nickel, and then it was processed in other countries. And they're just owning more about supply chains. They're no longer exporting raw nickel. Now they're exporting processed nickel. So they built the plants in country. Um, which has amplified their nickel revenues by like 30 times, but obviously their gain is somebody else's expense. So there's like a lot of conflict occurring in response to this, right? And everybody from China, United States, Europe, they've all approached the World Trade Organization and saying, this is unfair, right? We can't let Indo do this. Um, one of the reasons I'm bullish on Indo, actually, we can get into that, but they're being very intelligent with their with what they have access to right now. But nickel is something they have. It's the ace up their sleeve. They're weaponizing that accordingly. Now they're walking a fine line because I think we've gone to war for some pretty silly things over the you know course of history. Uh, I wrote a newsletter a couple months ago about the banana wars, for example, like the late 18th, late 17th, early 18th century. Uh, late 18th, early 19th century, United States went to war for bananas, and tens of thousands of people were killed in Cuba, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and Honduras to protect the interest of the United Fruit Company. You know, and it was like. The same old story, right? You invade, you know, you invade another country to gain access to its resources. I mean, this is the movie that plays out again and again and again. And we've done the same for nutmeg and tobacco and rubber, um, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff, salt, right? Uh, so would we go to war for nickel? Like, would there be a banana wars for nickel in Indonesia? It's absolutely foreseeable. President Widodo is walking a fine line and he knows it, right? But as he stated publicly, like, we have to dare to take these risks. He, he understands his time is now. And, and next on the the plate for Indo is is copper and cobalt. They'll be doing the same thing. And so, you know, we're seeing moves like this being made, you know, all over the world. And and all that says to me is when the supply of something becomes uncertain or vulnerable, the value of that thing typically goes up. Mm. And so in the near term, like over the course of the next decade, that's what I would say is near term, I expect the value of commodities to go up. Uh, for two reasons. One being that which we just discussed. It's like, I don't know where I'm going to get my stuff from. So if I have access to it, I'm going to stockpile. I'm willing to pay more, all of this. So the value will increase. And secondly, there's been so much dumb money flying around for like 12, 15 years that, you know, growth stocks in the US has been a no brainer, you know, and, and uh, these raw material industries have been completely starved of capital. And so, you know, you, you want to build anything in the future, you need the ingredients to do so. We don't have them because we haven't financed the production of those things. And we've sort of bent over for the environmental um, 
movement, which, you know, I got three young boys and I spent the majority of my life in super remote uh, parts of the country. Like I'm, I don't know, I'm pretty intimately familiar with what we stand to lose if we don't take care of our environment and habitat. Like, I feel like I know that better than most, you know, but, but do you expect the same protesters who have the leave the oil in the ground side on the to just flip the side around and the other side says, and permit every mine, you know, because we need the copper and the, the ingredients to build the renewable energy infrastructure. Like it's not going to happen. Like, you know, we don't think these things through that deep, but it's so, you know, as a consequence, we're, we're short on pretty much everything. Um, and, you know, if you were to say, but yeah, we're heading towards a global depression of some kind and this will destroy demand. And, and it very well might, you know, I'm, I'm not super sold on that though, because if you look at like global oil consumption over the last 15 years, there's a couple events that I would have expected to have made, made a bigger impact on demand for oil. You know, one being 2020, obviously, we locked everybody in their house, you know, landed airplanes, shuttered hotels, um, cars were in driveways. You might think that global oil demand, this is global, every, you know, you might think that oil demand fell by like 30%, 40%, 20%. It fell by 8% and just for one year. And then, you know, uh, caught right back up with its present trajectory and previous trajectory. And the other event would be 2008, the global financial crisis, the great financial crisis, right? The financial crisis of my lifetime. And global oil demand fell by slightly over 1% during the year 2008 and then right back on track in 2009. And when you step back and look at the 10-year chart, it's like, it didn't even happen. It's not even, not even a blip on the on the chart. And so, so you know, I, I'm, not, I'm no expert in that, like, you know, forecasting the long-term trend. But but I just look at history again. It's like, I don't know what's in the future, but I can look at the past and say, well, there's been a couple events where I would have expected demand destruction to occur and it didn't, not nearly to the extent that people forecast. I mean, it's more fun to forecast like, you know, end of days, doom and gloom and crashes. So I get it. But in reality, this is what typically happens and it's not as bad as we think. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I think that whether or not we're in a, a period of short-term volatility and uncertainty, which I think we are this decade, I'm still bullish, like human beings. Like mm. I'm long human ingenuity and progress, man, all day. And and so we're going to keep growing and building cool things and improving our quality of life and all of that. So, you know, that's sort of my my bigger picture view. So as a consequence, we're, we're going to need the ingredients to do that. Um, and so, you know, for that re reason, like I'm I'm quite bullish on the commodity sector. But you know, it's I would just say for anybody who's looking at that industry, I see too many people make the mistake. Of assuming that means you know they should pile into like mining equities and they're going to go up and and all, all of this it's like commodity super cycles happen in little growths and spurts and and in little pockets at a time and never all at once and you know uh you know grain had a minute then it cooled off then it was hot again energy the same you know live cattle futures that's actually like the hottest shot in the world right now like it's mm -hmm. it's it's quite up and to the right um uranium's getting its moment in the spotlight but you know, in these trends, like two things are occurring. There's the long-term supply and demand trend, which you could say is bullish. But then in the interim, the traders get involved and they overbuy and oversell and overbuy and oversell. And so you could think like, I'm bullish on food long-term. How are we going to feed ourselves? Sure. But like the price of grains can fluctuate massively because traders get in in the short term and overbuy and oversell. And so investors get wiped out because, you know, they can't predict and they overthink those short-term volatile moves that really have nothing to do with the big picture trend. And they get caught up in it, which is why I try to step back from that as best I can, yeah. um, you know. But that—that's called. I mean, if I can like shamelessly promote, I, I teach a course on commodity investing. It's at thecommodityuniversity.com. Uh, it's you know ten chapter lecture series myself and a bunch of buddies and um, walking through like how to build a portfolio. But uh, yeah, that's that's a couple things that I share on that one, Robert. No, that's great. I've um, I guess a good high note maybe to close on too that these. Things are uncertain. Um, empires have risen and fallen many times. We've moved through different ages, different technological ages. But ultimately, you know, we we need the ingredients. We need the raw ingredients to create. And to your point, you know, human ingenuity and industriousness it does not rest. You know, we don't stop. So I I would agree with you. Just being bullish on commodities in general, I think that's uh, a really good place to be looking because, you know, again, humans don't stop. And the money printing sort of drives it as well, right? As currency's not holding value, people start to diversify into gold and 
black gold, things like that. So, right. Right. Um, that's super cool. Uh, Jay, man, this has been a very fun conversation. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, hopefully ended on a relative high note considering we covered kind of, uh, some, some disastrous stuff we might be facing in the near future. Um, but to everyone out there, just, yeah, keep your head up and keep learning and embrace sovereignty and freedom, right? That's, that's the right course to chart these uncertain times. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, not hard to find. So it's the Jay Martin show is, is my, uh, my podcast. That's wherever you download your podcasts and, and on YouTube or there as well. I publish a weekly newsletter on Substack. It's just called Jay Martin letter, real, real original. And then, um, yeah, my, you know, current project I'm quite fired up about is the commodity university. It's the commodity Easy to find for anybody who's looking like we start with basic principles and fundamentals. Now, I don't know if you find this now, but it's like, Anywhere in finance, any bucket, it, people are often intimidated to ask beginner questions. They don't want to look like the rookie in the room, you know, and so they'll they'll pretend they understand things they don't and maybe make assumptions about things they are kind of muddy on. And so we really peeled this back to like fundamentals. The first chapter is literally what is a commodity? And by chapter 10, it's portfolio construction, but everything in the middle. Um, and yeah, and these conversations often go to dark places, don't they? And it's kind of like, well, we want to end there. <laughs> it's kind of dire, right? Um, but I think we're both simultaneously very aligned that, you know, two things are happening. Number one, there, there's always shorter volatile periods between longer periods of peace, prosperity, and growth. I mean, that, that is the mega trend you know, over the course of, you know, multiple centuries. And, and those, those dark periods are, are usually a fraction of the light periods. And simultaneously, you can decouple yourself from the poor decisions of others. And that's something anybody can do, you know, and that is sovereignty. That's, the coupling yourself from you know the counterparty risk, which is whoever's on the other side of, of you know your world and that scenario, whether it's you know we think about counterparty risk as investments, but it's bigger than that, right? It's we've all got counterparty risk in our life, and you can decouple yourself from that by being sovereign over your wealth, right? You know, um, and uh, being sovereign over your family decisions, being sovereign over the education of your kids, you know, and being sovereign over your health, you know, and your nutrition. Like, man, it doesn't stop, and you can take it anywhere. It's very important to do so. So. Um, sometimes a dark conversation, but I'm actually very optimistic about the future. Yeah, I'm as well. And that we, we have more access to ideas and resources and knowledge than ever before. So that seems to be a really good thing. Uh, Jay, 100%. thank you so much for doing this, man. My pleasure, dude.